Let's pray. Fathers, we come to chapter 3 of this extraordinary story. We pray that you would help us to understand it, help us to appreciate the wonders of what is going on here, and above all, we pray that we would appreciate more deeply your sovereign hand and the work you do in individual lives to change the world. So we pray, Lord, that you would speak as we study for your glory's sake. Amen. There's a story of two soldiers at the front line lying under their blankets, looking up at the stars one night, nervously waiting for the next day, while sleepless with the noise of exploding shells all around them. And they just start chatting, because there's not a lot else to do. And Jack asks his comrade Tom, so what made you sign up? Well, said Tom, I've no wife or children, and... uh, Well, I just love the thrill and the buzz of war, so I joined up. Well, what about you? Well, replied Jack, I've got a wife and and two children, and we love the peace of our home. That's why I joined up. There is all the difference in the world between the motivations of these two men. One is a daredevil who hazards his life because he's nothing to live for, The other is a hero who hazards his life because he has something so precious that it's not only worth living for, it's worth dying for. That is the difference between a daredevil and a hero. Now, we're not looking at a war story today, although as we've seen from the book of Judges, this uh, uh, was a scary time, full of wars and anarchy. Nor are we dealing with daredevils here, but we are dealing with heroes. Boaz and Ruth are both heroes in the true sense of the word because they both make great, costly sacrifices for the one they love. And that's not so much each other. It's God. God is the one they love. And that is why they make sacrifices. And true love, as opposed to romantic love, which can often be obsessive and self-indulgent, true love is always costly and risky. True love always carries the risk of rejection and suffering. True love always shoulders burdens. And motivation is everything here. But of course, uh, trying to read other people's motivations is a precarious business. It's all too easy to look at somebody else's lifestyle or actions or, or uh, the way they go about their business or whatever it is. It's also easy to look from the outside and draw all kinds of conclusions from what we see. We're so quick to put a sort of more negative spin on what other people get up to. You know, they're just, I don't know, materialistic or too aggressive or too ambitious or so self-centered or lacking in discipline or whatever it might be. Now, of course, that may well be true. And I guess we all have to repent of all of these sins daily even. But it saddens me how quick we are to assume the worst of others while at the same time spin the best for ourselves. If anything, it really ought to be the other way around. 
For I would guess that the motivations and assumptions we have about what other people are getting up to reveal more about our own hearts than they do about the people we judge. We just assume so much. So I guess we shouldn't be surprised when we come to Ruth chapter 3 that people see it as a more of a sort of (laughs) X-rated sex fest than a rose-tinted romance, because some people do that with chapter 3. Sex is what our culture is obsessed with, more than anything else, I'd have thought. So it's no surprise that they look at chapter 3 and assume that that's exactly what it's all about. Now, of course, there are reasons in this story for thinking that it is decidedly dodgy, and we'll look at that. We'll have to deal with those. There are some curious details here. But I just want us to suspend our doubts and aspersions, give Ruth and Boaz credit, even if aspects of this story do indeed appear very odd indeed. Because Naomi's advice really does seem to be asking for trouble. We've, uh, of course, um, entered a time when marriages were arranged by parents more often than not. And so Naomi's involvement in this episode is absolutely the norm. And I suppose it's at this point that Naomi most resembles Mrs. Bennett from Pride and Prejudice. You know, sort of scheming and plotting to get her daughter-in-law truly sorted and taken off her hands and taken care of. And I guess you could say she's not being truly, completely altruistic. I mean, there's much to do here with her own future well-being as it is for Ruth's. But that's to be slightly too negative, I think. But what neither of them could know at this stage is why God was interested in their future well-being. And he was interested. But they could never have guessed why. Apart from the obvious, that God is always interested in individuals, which is in itself a remarkable thing. But they couldn't know why it was in God's purposes for Ruth to find a husband. So here we go into uh, Mrs. Bennett mode, verse 1. One day, Naomi and her mother-in-law said to her, uh, My daughter, should I not try and find a home for you where you'll be well provided? Is not Boaz, just you know, pluck his name out of the air, is not Boaz, whose servant girls you've been... Uh, A kinsman of ours? Tonight, he'll be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash and perfume yourself, put on your best clothes and go down to the threshing floor and don't let him know you're there until he's finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he's lying, then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He'll tell you what to do. I bet he will. (laughs) Now, some time has clearly passed, perhaps... uh, You know, over the weeks, Naomi's been lying awake at night trying to calculate the best way to capitalize on the fact that, you know, the drama of chapter two, where did uh, Ruth end up? Boaz's field? Okay, right now, what can we do about that? I mean, you know, as soon as she's realized who Ruth's benefactor was, she's she's focused. (laughs) But you have to wonder, couldn't there have been a simpler way of going about all this? More to the point, couldn't there have been a safer way of going about all this? After all, uh, remember the darkness of these days, especially for women, as we've seen, especially for single women, especially for foreign single women. Okay, the harvest has ended, but there was still work to do before the autumn planting. All the crops had been stored, needed sorting, sorting and winnowing, and that took time. So there would have been people around. 
And, of course, the winnowing barns were obviously out of town. So Naomi was telling Ruth to go out at night, all alone, looking her best. Was that not by itself asking for trouble? A poor, widowed foreigner who belonged to a nobody, well, was easy prey. Who would have battered an eyelid if she'd been done over? Dressed like that, they might say, oh, she's asking for trouble. It was risky, to say the least. Now, you're going to accuse me again of being a slightly sort of anti-romantic spoil sport here. Uh, The NIV, I think, translates verse 3 a bit unhelpfully. You you could be forgiven for thinking from the way it's translated that, that Ruth was dressed to the nines for the red carpet. It makes it feel much more sort of pretty woman than EastEnders. But uh, listen to one commentator, uh, Dean Ulrich. She bathed and perfumed herself because she'd been likely gleaning in the field all day. And the Hebrew word translated best clothes in the NIV does not necessarily mean anything more than an outer garment that would keep Ruth warm in the evening air. The word is used in Exodus 22 of a poor person's cloak that should be returned in the evening for sleeping. So perhaps, actually, the use of that word not so much reveals that she's dressed to the nines as that she's wearing the only cloak that a poor person has to keep warm. So actually, it re-emphasizes her lowly status, re-emphasizes her poverty. But there is one point that a number of commentators are clear on. What she's doing advertises that she's no longer in mourning. And that in itself is a statement. In other words, she is available. But the dangers of the walk uh, out of Bethlehem across the fields to Boaz's barn and, and her sort of come-hither attractiveness are the least of her problems because Naomi's advice for what to do when she gets to the barn seems, frankly, insane. She seems to be describing nothing short of a full-on seduction. Sure, Boaz is not at home and and Ruth is not sneaking into his bedroom, but (laughs) these instructions amount to pretty much the closest thing. And we'll think about what it means in in a moment. But, But remember what I said about reading motivations. Don't be quick to judge. Don't assume you know exactly what's going on here or what's going on in their hearts. But one thing is clear... Naomi is advising Ruth to propose more than just being good friends. That is clear. And Boaz would understand that. But listen to Daniel Block, another commentator, who who describes Naomi's plan like this. He says, It is fraught with danger that her proposal of marriage is highly irregular from the standpoint of custom. You have a woman propositioning a man, a young person propositioning an older person, a destitute field worker propositioning the landowner. So what would Boaz do? How would he take this? As another commentator put it, Robert Hubbard, he says, would such feminine forwardness flatter, embarrass, or anger Boaz? That's the risk. Would it flatter him? Would it embarrass him? Or anger him? Any of those three reactions would be perfectly understandable, don't you think? To make matters even worse... The context of this assignation was not actually 
ideal. I mean, there have always been places where so-called girls of easy virtue were available to men of dubious morals. I'll never forget how, uh, you know, the fact that one of Sheffield's red light districts when we lived there uh, was around the city's maternity hospital. You just think about that for a minute. It's particularly grim. Pregnant mums waiting to start labour or having just given birth upstairs while faithless partners pay for sex downstairs. How callous and cynical can you get? Well, in the ancient world, and particularly perhaps in the period of the judges, the threshing floor was another such place. Listen to the prophet Hosea speaking a few centuries later as he compares Israel to prostitutes going after other gods. And he says this, Do not rejoice, O Israel. Do not be jubilant like the other nations, for you have been unfaithful to your God. You love the wages of a prostitute at every threshing floor. I mean, it stands to reason, isn't it? Field workers, hard day out in the fields, away from home. You know, maybe just a mile or two from home, but still it's out of the home context. Easy. So what was Ruth doing? More to the point, what on earth was Naomi doing suggesting this? Talk about asking for trouble. It's shocking. I mean, that's far removed from the virtuous image we no doubt have of her. And I suspect we're not wrong to have of her. But do you see how fraught this all is? Now, before we go on and sort of unravel this particular little conundrum, there are one or two legal detours we need to go on. And I know your heart is sinking at this thinking, at this point. You're thinking, oh. You're, going to be, you're thinking, I'm going to be bored by this. Well, you're not, actually. It's all in the way you tell them. Um, <clears throat> and I actually think you'll find this quite interesting. Um, and if you don't, I really don't want to know. Um, so pay attention. <laughs> the first legal detour is to try and understand Israelite property law. <laughs> but this actually is quite important. The first thing we need to understand is that the Israelite economy was not capitalist. All right? It's not capitalist. That's one of the things that we've got to understand. Ownership never worked in the way it does in the modern capitalist world. Funnily enough, we have hints of this actually every Sunday at All Souls. In pretty much every service. It's one of the few bits of liturgy we have in every service. I wonder if you've noticed it. It's from 2 Chronicles 29. This is David praying publicly for the last time before he dies. But who am I and who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this? Everything comes from you and we have given you only what comes from your hand. In other words, everything we have is his anyway. So all that we have, we have from you and that is what we give. And we rightly say that every week. David understood, as, 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 as everybody else who understood and followed the covenant understood, that the land belongs not to the people, but to God. And the land includes everything in it. In fact, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. And he has just allotted a certain bit for his people. And the land was given to the people under Joshua, and when it was done that, it was divided amongst the various tribes. 
And you can see that on the map on the back of the resources booklet. And uh, each tribe had its uh, uh, division. So Israel was divided into the 12 tribes. And then the tribes themselves were broken down into clans and households. So back in, in chapter 2, verse 5, we saw that yesterday. When Boaz asks, who does Ruth belong to? He's not being chauvinistic or patronizing. He's simply wanting to understand her identity. For every Israelite, every Israelite was a member of a tribe, a clan, and a household. And it's still the same in many, many parts of the world. It was a big part of Ugandan culture, for instance. And so one of the things that uh, happens when you meet someone you've not met before is you find out who their parents were and their grandparents, what their town is from, and, and who their cousins are and everything else. And very often when you meet again... The, the, the etiquette is that you ask how their parents and grandparents are, if they're still alive, and how the cousins are, and you go through the whole lot, because it's a way of saying that you are located in a community. You're not this individualistic blob. I mean, none of you are in, in, individualistic blobs, I just hasten to add, but, but you are part of something bigger. I mean, it's a, so, it's a far cry from Western individualism, where our family background is absolutely irrelevant when you meet someone, isn't it? It's irrelevant. Unless you're in the sort of Christian sort of ghetto, isn't it? And if you have a sort of slightly well-known name in Christian circles, that's when it does happen. You know, uh, if, if your surname is Buse, then suddenly that, that you know, oh, 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 right, interesting. Yes, I go to All Souls too. <laughs> and God intended the partitions of the land to remain in time, within the particular tribes and clans, to remain in perpetuity. It's God's, and he said, this is that bit for Manasseh, this is for Judah, this, and so on. Nobody actually owns the land on which they live and earn their keep. Now, of course, troubles come, circumstances change, you know, there are invasions or there are famines, uh, people become poor, others become rich, especially in times where things you know, are beyond the control of individuals, whether it's a, a famine or an army. And it's rather like the sort of global financial crises of the day now. I mean, so many people around the world suffer and will suffer perhaps even more than they are as a result of things that they have little or no involvement in whatsoever. And the covenant takes that sort of thing into account. It understands that, you know, things change. And because the land is God's, and because God is concerned for the poor, he insists on a system that has inbuilt protections and flexibilities so that it is impossible or should be impossible for people to accumulate so much land to squeeze the poor out. So this is what Chris Wright does as he points uh, as he's describing this whole system in his really helpful book. It's a big hardback resource, really. Um, the Old Testament Ethics for the People of God. And this is how he describes the land tenure system. Um, the territory was allotted to tribes according to their clans. And within the clans, each house household had its portion or, in the law, what's called its heritage. All right. So Judges 21 describes Israelite soldiers returning each to his tribe, to his clan, to his household inheritance. 
And the system had two features that actually put it in marked contrast with Canaanite economics that was in the land before and, in fact, anything else in the ancient world and probably uh, ever since. There's never quite been a system like this. Within this system in the covenant, there were two key principles. One, equitable distribution. In other words, it's fair as much as is possible. And the second principle is inalienability. In other words, it couldn't go out of the tribal clan. So it was not to be bought or sold as a commercial asset. The land that you lived on and farmed was yours as a sort of tenant to God. So you couldn't sell it. But it was to remain as far as possible within the extended family or at least within the circle of families in your clan. All right? So inheritance is the key. Not to make the rich grow richer or keep their wealth, but to make the poor don't get poorer. Or at least to stay out of poverty or to get out of poverty. And that's where the whole system of jubilees come in. Where basically, where you, people have got so far down the, 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 the pecking order, things have got so bad, they're absolutely hopeless. Once in a blue moon, everything thrown up in the air and they start again. And so Chris puts it like this. A poor man does not cease to be the rightful owner of a property. Instead, a debtor, in, a set, in essence, rents his land to someone wealthy, selling the produce of future harvests, and over time, these debts pay down the debt. So in time, they can get their land back. Do you see? So in terms of the deeds, if you like, they still have your name on, even if you're too poor to hold it. And you have someone who might come and help you out. Now, I hope you found that vaguely interesting. Um, think about Naomi and Ruth. Elimelech fled his inheritance, didn't he? He left it when he went to Moab. And because widows couldn't inherit, Naomi and Ruth are therefore stuck. They're absolutely stuck, especially Ruth as a foreigner, an alien living in the land, who has no tribe, no clan, no household. So when Boaz asks, whose is she? Well, she's only a member by marriage somehow because she's foreign. And that's why the only answer for Ruth is marriage. If you think about it, here again is another example of how God has provided, within the terms of his law, protection for the most vulnerable. In the law is grace. In the law is gospel. You can see why Naomi was so attracted to this, can't you? Uh, Ruth, rather. Again, you know, this is protection for the aliens, the widows, and the fatherless. This is uh, Ulrich again. Land was the stage on which Israel lived out its covenantal relationship with God. In other words, how they lived with God, how they responded and obeyed God, it sort of showed itself, manifested itself in what they did with their land. The land is everything here. So as a peculiar people, he says, Israel was to present a distinct witness to the nations. That witness was seen largely in the way Israelites did their business. Fairness, compassion, and self-giving were the bottom line. Man, that's different from the way we do business, isn't it? 
The only issue was whether or not there were going to be people living at this time in Bethlehem who would obey the covenant. That's the only issue. God has made it quite clear. The issue is, are there going to be people, men of standing and righteousness, who will do it? Will Ruth find favor? Well, she's begun to. There's a second quick legal detail we need to make, because actually for this to work, Ruth couldn't just marry anybody. And so we come now to the idea of the kinsman redeemer or in Hebrew, the goel. And um, unfortunately, as I said, in the uh, NIV, today's NIV that we've heard uh, read, they call it family guardian, which is just hopeless because it completely obliterates the idea of redemption. Fortunately, in the new, new NIV, uh, they have put family redeemer, which is, which is fine. But the kinsman redeemer idea is a very important one in the Old Testament. And it is that little word, goel, and it's all about protecting the family, rescuing the family when it's in dire straits. When a family was threatened, the goel had a covenant responsibility to come to their aid. But it had to be a close relative. Why? Well, because of the law of land tenure, so that the land that goes with that person stays within the clan, do you see? so that it doesn't suddenly enrich another tribe or clan over and above the one that's lost out. That's why the marriage has to stay within the family. And so this is what Leviticus 25 says. If an alien or temporary resident among you uh, becomes rich and one of your countrymen becomes poor and sells himself to the alien living among you or to a member of the alien's clan, he retains the right of redemption after he sold himself. One of his relatives may redeem him An uncle or a cousin or any blood relative in the clan may redeem him, or if he prospers, he may redeem himself. In other words, he can buy his freedom back. In other words, uh, don't think so much in terms of slavery as debt. It's about recovering the debt. The interesting thing is that this little word goel is used more of God than anyone else. Just uh, in the resources booklet on page six, I've given a table of other places where God is described as a goel. But um, here's one of my favorite ones from Isaiah 43. This is God himself, Yahweh, describing himself with wonderful titles, one of which is goel. Isaiah 43. This is what Yahweh says your Redeemer, your Goel, the Holy One of Israel. For your sake I will send to Babylon and bring down as fugitives all the Babylonians and the ships in which they took pride. I am Yahweh, your Holy One, Israel's creator, your king. Isn't it appropriate that in the context of bringing the people back from exile in Babylon, he calls himself Goel? They're in debt, and God buys them back. Now, redemption is a word from the slave market, as I'm sure you know. You buy back slaves to restore them to freedom. So God does that for his people in Babylon. And by insisting on the poor being redeemed by relatives, we see yet another example of God's law protecting the most vulnerable and reflecting his character. Again and again, even in these simple, you know, isn't it interesting that even in the most sort of nitty-gritty economic laws, we find God's character reflected. 
Now, the important thing is that a kinsman redeemer is expected to act financially for the family. This is about finance. It wasn't necessarily an expectation of marriage. So if Elimelech had survived and returned from Moab with Naomi, his family would have rallied round, or should have done. All right, so he would have been able to get his inheritance back, even though he'd left it, even though he was wrong to leave it. Okay, so there's the problem. Elimelech and his sons had died, and the only way to sort this out was a parallel law, a third law, but we'll look at that one tomorrow because I don't want to overdo it. You know. um, but that's the law of leveret marriage. We'll come to that tomorrow. Um, but this is why the closer relative is initially keen, but then when he finds out marriage is involved too, he's completely put off. It's a combination of different laws coming to play here because of Ruth's unique circumstance. Anyway, fine. We've done now. You all right? You survived that. We can get back to the story. Okay. So Naomi's given her really dodgy advice, and uh, we are now heading for trouble. <clears throat> the sun has gone down. The heat of the day has dissipated. The night air is filled with the gentle chirps of crickets, birds, and bats. Workers have gone home. Landowners are settling down to sleep in their barns. And I guess if you'd walk through those fields that evening as the sun was setting, you could perhaps sort of hear the murmurings of conversations in different fields around. You can just imagine it, can't you? Sitting around campfires, perhaps telling stories, eating, drinking, just thinking about how the day has gone and just keeping themselves occupied before going to sleep. But apart from that, the only sounds are the countryside at night. Boaz has had a good day. And the fellowship with his team has been fun. And he settles down in his barn, perhaps with only a blanket for warmth, on the straw. And it's into this scene that Ruth creeps. No one's seen her, and that is just as well. Because we all know what goes on on threshing floors, don't we? What she's doing has all the appearances of impropriety. Verse 7, Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. In the middle of the night, something startled the man, and he turned and discovered a woman at his feet. Well, I guess that was a bit of a surprise. Especially as Boaz, we're told, was a man uh, greatly respected, a man of integrity. The interesting thing is we're never told whether or not he's married or been married. It's highly probable that he had been married, whether or not he still had a wife or he was widowed, we don't know. We know nothing else about him. All we know is that he's a man of integrity. Now, much ink has been spilled about that little phrase, uncovered his feet, because in Hebrew, the word feet can, in fact, be a euphemism for the sexual organs. So some suggest that she creeps into the barn, and they have sex. Uh, and of course, you know, we all know what happens when two attractive people get to lie down together. It's just inevitable, isn't it? Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Well, the writer does leave it ambiguous. I'm sorry, we, we, that's just the fact. It is very ambiguous. And I think that probably just heightens the sense of risk. Like, what if someone saw them? We know what they would assume. Oh, she's just a foreign girl. Just a bit of easy fun for Boaz, keeping company at night. 
It's like when a Christian couple goes on holiday before they're married, and, and you know everybody assumes they're sleeping together. Of course, whether they are or not is a different matter. Now, while this is unwise, perhaps, and I think Naomi's plan was extremely unwise, assuming they're having sex says more about us than them. These are two people who take God and his covenant very seriously, as we'll see. Now, look how the conversation develops. Who are you, he asked. I am your servant, Ruth. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a kinsman redeemer. That is not a conversation between a prostitute and a client, is it? This is covenant language. Ruth and Boaz are both speaking the language of covenant people. Ruth is nothing but respectful, and there's a lovely detail as she approaches her kinsman redeemer, for the word for corner there can be translated wing. She's saying, spread the wing of your cloak over me, which is a beautiful image of protection and intimacy, and what's more, it's a direct echo of something Boaz said to her about God in the previous chapter. Do you remember? Chapter 2, verse 12. May the Lord repay you for what you've done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you've come to take refuge. You see, this is not about sex. This is about security. God-given security covenant security under the wings of God yes Ruth clearly is proposing marriage no doubt about it and Boaz gets that but to see what this marriage is all about look at Boaz's response because you see there's been a subtle shift from the way that Ruth has been described in how the book has gone on she has moved from being an alien to being a kin Now, what happened in Norway recently was the work of a crazed extremist. Despite the media's desire to make this out to be a matter of so-called Christian fundamentalism, Anders Breivik was driven by an insane nationalism and xenophobia that has nothing whatsoever to do with the gospel. Even if it was claimed to be of sorts Christian, there is no justification whatsoever. The reason for bringing this up, though, is that there is a little knotty problem we have to undo. Because in Deuteronomy, the covenant says this. No Amorite or Moabite or any of his descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord, even down to the tenth generation, for they did not come to meet you with bread and water on your way when you came out of Egypt, and they hired Balaam, son of Baal, from Pethor in Aram Naraheim, to pronounce a curse on you. However, the Lord your God would not listen to Balaam and turned his curse into a blessing for you because the Lord your God loves you. Remember the whole business of Balaam and his ass? Verse 6, do not seek a treaty of friendship with them as long as you live. What is a marriage covenant if not a treaty of friendship? Here you have a law keeper being told he can't make a a covenant with a Moabite. And yet, Ruth, the Moabitess, seems to be proposing just that. What's the difference between Brevik xenophobia and the covenant's exclusion of foreigners? Is there a difference? Is this where this all comes from? 
Well, there is a difference, you'll be pleased to hear. God's covenant is not about racism and hatred of foreigners. God's covenant is about faithfulness to him. And the biggest threat to faithfulness to him was following other gods. And that is why marriage between Israelites and Gentiles was such a threat, such a problem. Because time and time again, the most intimate relationship in one's life, in anyone's life, a marriage, will affect them spiritually in ways they're not even aware of. It's the most intimate part of who you are. And what has Ruth done? Well, think about Ruth. You see, she's gone the other way. She's left her home, left her parents, left her culture, left her religion. And remember the thrilling declaration that Craig put into song? Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. Your God, my God. And this is why, as the story of Ruth has gone on, she's shifted in how she's been perceived. The narrator emphasizes her foreign origins in Ruth 1. So then she's referred to as Ruth the Moabitess in chapters 2 and 3, and twice again in chapter 4, but not at all in chapter 3. And that's significant because in chapter 3, she's not a Moabitess. She's my daughter, my kin. For Naomi, Ruth is not a Moabitess. She's family. And even more wonderfully, for Boaz, she's not a Moabitess. She's family. You know, aliens, foreigners, have always been welcomed into the covenant community if they live by the covenant. The covenant is not about xenophobia. It's about faithfulness to God. And isn't the same true today? It's probably fair to say that every single marriage, every marriage is a cross-cultural experience. Every marriage. Even if the couple grew up together in the same time. You know, issues of how you do Christmas together or how you have different experiences of school or aspirations, or you name it. Every marriage is a cross-cultural marriage. But there can be particular uh, challenges for interracial marriages. And yet I actually think that they are crucial for overcoming our society's divisions and prejudices. And I'm pleased to say that All Souls has a wonderful heritage of this. Praise God for that. In fact, churches should be at the forefront of interracial mixed marriages, so-called, because it proves we something far more, something in common, far more important that transcends all human divisions. We have Christ. But without God in Christ at the center of a marriage, well, it's so hard, if not impossible, to share the deepest things in common. Of course, it's so hard for those who've been converted subsequent to marriage and you know, to feel very isolated at home. And there are those who entered marriage thinking that it might lead to bring a spouse to faith. And, and that does happen. I, I fear not as often as we might hope or long for. And that's a really hard thing. And I'm very conscious I'm treading on thin ice here. I certainly don't want to be judgmental or unhelpful. Uh, And once married, it is far more important to stay married, if possible, at all. If anyone asks for advice about getting married to a non-believer, I would always simply say, first of all, hold it. And would almost certainly add, don't. But that's not the case with Ruth. 
She's now part of the family, the family of faith, which matters infinitely more than her race, her skin color, her social standing, her looks. And Boaz gets that. And he says that she is noble in character. This is one of the most wonderful things I discovered this week. Because um, Ruth has shown incredible kindness. She's shown chesed in verse 10. She's shown chesed to Naomi, as we've seen. But think about it. By proposing a marriage to an older man who is a relative of her late father-in-law, Elimelech, she's showing chesed to her family as well as Boaz. And as Ulrich put it, Ruth was marrying neither for love nor money, but for family. And the wonderful thing is, in the process, God blessed her with the other two. That marriage would be the very blessing from Yahweh that Boaz prayed for her. And then Boaz gives Ruth the highest accolade it is possible for a Bible woman to have in verse 12. All my fellow townsmen know that you're a woman of noble character. Everybody knows it. They've spotted you. In our Bibles, um, we follow the Greek order of the Old Testament or the Septuagint translation. And that, you know, there's logic to it. It lumps all the histories together, makes perfect sense. So you have the sequence of Judges, Ruth, Samuel, Kings, Chronicles. And in the resources booklet, I've listed some of the parallel different canons of how the Old Testament is arranged. The interesting thing in the Hebrew Bible, the canon is arranged differently, as I'm sure you know. Ruth was grouped within the wisdom literature, the writings, as they were called. And there was some variation within it, but in many of the Hebrew canons around, just before Ruth came not Judges, but Proverbs. And how does Proverbs end? With the wonderful epilogue of the wife of noble character. And notice how everyone in the town knows that according, uh, knows about this, according to Boaz. They all know what you're like, Ruth. They can see she's a woman of noble character, despite her ethnicity. But now it becomes clear Boaz has decided to turn this woman of noble character into his wife of noble character. And at last, this is where we can get some genuine romance. Happy now? You see, I'm not a total party pooper, but like the best romance is the lovers must overcome great hurdles. So briefly, as we come to an end, they're not out of trouble yet. There's a glitch, because there is, in fact, a closer kinsman redeemer than Boaz, verse 12. I mean, you can, actually, I think you can hear the regret in Boaz's words here, can't you? Although it is true that I'm nearer of kin, there is a kinsman redeemer nearer than I. Well, Naomi was the one doing the sharp thinking before. Now Boaz is going to have to get his thinking cap on. He's going to have to try and work out how they're going to get around this. The fact that he wants to indicates that there is more than just duty here, don't you think? My guess is that as Ruth slept beside him in the barn that night, Boaz lay awake the whole night trying to think of, right, now how are we going to deal with this? It's clear now that he's going to do everything he can to marry her. And he's going to go beyond the call of duty now. Perhaps as he caught her eye in the fields, there was an attraction after all. Perhaps there was. There certainly is now. And he's yet, despite that, determined still to play it by the book. 
He's as concerned for her honor as he is for his own. In verse 14, we all know what people assume. A woman creeping out of a threshing floor in the early hours, we all know what that means. Yet what does Boaz do as she goes home in the early hours? Six measures of barley, more than enough, tons. And yet again, this impoverished woman is given a huge amount of food. I guess you can imagine someone else was pretty sleepless that night, don't you think? Naomi was back home, thinking, now how on earth, or what have I done? (laughs) Well, she's desperate to know. I mean, she was probably sort of, you know, waiting by the door to sort of catch a glimpse of Ruth coming home the next morning, find out what was going on. The news would have been overwhelming, and yet there's a glitch. There's this other guy. Now, it's fascinating. The way the writer tells the story, he's not been mentioned at all (laughs) up until now. We don't know anything about him. I'm sure Naomi would have known about him, of course. (laughs) But as far as the storyteller is concerned, it just adds to the dramatic tension, doesn't it? And yet she's got every confidence in Boaz to sort it out. You know, it's his problem now. She's done her bit. He's got to sort this one out. So look at verse 17, though. The most amazing aspect is what Booth said to Ru- Boaz said to Ruth as she relays it back. He gave me these six measures of barley, saying, don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Remember Naomi's bitter complaint? Yahweh's brought me back empty. But her kinsman redeemer has brought her back full. Well, that's, not, new. that's uh, not true now, is it? You know, Ruth went to Boaz's field empty. She's returned to Naomi more than full on more than one occasion. There's plenty of bread to go around in the house of bread. And this reflects not simply the fact that Boaz is generous and loving, but the fact that Yahweh is their God. And that's what God's like. The scene is set, therefore, for a very surprising conclusion. But we'll do that tomorrow. I want to end with another song. This is from an album I played in church a few weeks back, Steve Curtis Chapman's album, Beauty Will Rise. It was written, the whole album was written within the weeks after the tragic death of his, his adopted daughter. And throughout the album, he's preaching to himself. Well, in this song, it's called Spring is Coming. And it wonderfully uses agricultural imagery, which is absolutely appropriate. The winter is coming to an end, but it's not at the end yet. Uh, Curtis Chapman is still in the grip of crushing grief. I guess this is a song so easily that could so easily have been sung by Ruth and Naomi as they grew to trust in God in their darkest days and darkest nights. And I guess it's a song we will all need to learn to sing. In the middle of winters, to trust that the spring is coming.